Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. Julie, what is up? I'm super excited because next week, well, this recording will air. It will have already passed, but we're going to RubyCon. Yes, we will be in person next week together doing our thing if San Diego can, can even handle it. So yeah, I'm very excited for that. But I haven't even had time to be excited about it because I'm so focused on what I need to do before that day. So crunch time. What about you? It's gone. Same. I had two projects that I'm working on simultaneously and trying to get it all done because I'm also taking some time off between RubyConf and Thanksgiving. So I've also been kind of stressing about that, but I'm going to put that aside because I'm very excited. Today, we have a special guest on the show. Ufuk, welcome to the show. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Although I don't think you need an introduction. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. My name is Ufuk Kayseri-Leolur. I'm an engineering manager at Shopify, and I lead the Ruby infrastructure team within our Ruby and Rails infrastructure team at Shopify. Our team works on the Ruby and Rails fundamentals of our platform, and our mandate is to make sure that the Rails framework and the Ruby language are 100-year frameworks and languages with a thriving and healthy community, good tooling, and they're the choice of people in the industry. That's very important for our platform primarily. So that's the reason why our team exists. But we also work on these open source tools. So the work that we do is hopefully benefiting the whole community as well. Personally, my background, I was trained as a physicist. I have physics and math degree, and then I did a PhD in physics. But while I was doing my PhD, I slowly, like most physicists, gravitated towards programming because it's like more instant gratification. You build something and you see people use it and you solve problems and you see them in action with a very short amount of time between the problem and the solution. As opposed to academia where you work on like really open problems that take like many years to go through. So I think that was the pull for me back then. And then once I found myself in the middle of programming as a professional, I worked at various startups with various languages. But I think Ruby has been the language that's had the biggest pull for me. I taught myself Ruby as we were starting to form a startup accelerator back in Istanbul, Turkey with two of my partners. Up to that point, I was doing a lot of C-sharp, which I was enjoying. I think it's C-sharp.net is a good platform, good language. But I was always curious about Ruby and Rails and heard people have had really good success stories building platforms in a short amount of time. And I wanted to try my hand at that. So I pulled up all the resources online, taught myself Ruby, and I've been doing Ruby since then, which was about, I think, more than a decade ago at this point. And now at my current role, I'm working with the teams that are having an impact in the C Ruby implementation of the Ruby language, where our team is trying to do performance improvements and modernization of the C Ruby code base. So I feel very excited and privileged to have this current role where I get to have that kind of an impact through the people who know much better. While you were talking, I had this 
genius idea for a clickbait title and also a solution to one of my problems that I get this question a lot in my inbox. And you have been a programmer for a long time. You're a scientist. You know what's happening with Rails. You're in the community. You're going to conferences. You're seeing a lot. I get asked this question all the time. My little brother is about to graduate college with a computer science degree. And he joined the line of, should I learn Ruby on Rails if I want to get a job as a programmer in 2023? The selfish answer would be yes. But let me not answer your question directly. Let me tell you a little bit more about something I did a couple of years back. Because I work for Shopify remotely and because I'm seven hours ahead of Eastern time zone, but because I try to align my time with the Eastern time, I work during my evenings. I work like shifted days, which opens up my days for me. So until about two years ago, I was teaching computer science to high school students at my daughter's high school. I did that for three years. And so like I had two classes, uh, taught them for two years. It's a, it was a two-year course. And I thought about the same question a lot because the course curriculum didn't mandate a programming language, but they were like gently suggesting to use Java. And I didn't want to teach kids Java because it's got so much boilerplate overhead. Um, so I was thinking, should I teach them Ruby or should I teach them JavaScript? In the end, I decided on JavaScript because I realized that I wanted to show them a lot of the web. And as I was showing them HTML, CSS, I had to teach them JavaScript anyway. And just like making them more confused by adding Ruby or Rails to the stack wasn't going to help them nor me. So in that sense, there's a certain amount of pragmatism that I suggest that everyone uses when they approach things like that. I'm not a language fanatic. Like I said, I've worked with lots of different languages through my career. And if my next job is with a different language, I happily do it. I do believe in the right tool for the right job approach as well. But personally, I really enjoy writing Ruby. So to people like your brother, I highly suggest that they learn Ruby just for the fun of it. Because not everything has to be for a greater cause. Not everything has to be for, oh, am I going to make more money if I know Ruby? Well, maybe not. But maybe through the knowledge that you have as you're learning Ruby, you will realize that there are like different approaches to different problems and that will make you a better developer and that will ultimately make you earn more money. But I usually don't like for myself putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, to think, oh, if I do X, will I get more money? I'm generally a more curious person. I think that's been the thing that's been driving me throughout my whole life, both in academia and programming. I just like learning things sometimes for the sake of it. And they usually turn out to be really useful later on in my life. So that sounds like a non-answer maybe, but that would be my answer. Can I follow that up with another question? I've been told as I was going in my learning journey to learn something more deeply, maybe pick a language and learn that language deeply. And I get to a point where how deeply do I need to learn something? And should I branch off and learn other languages? I'm curious, both of your thoughts on that. Again, languages, as far as I see them, are tools. 
And as any good craftsman, if you're using tools, you should be mastering them. So mastering the language that you're working with, that you're earning a living from, is always a good idea. And I think the the mastery is, well, there's no limit to mastery, but I think you're good at that when you don't have to think about how you're going to solve a problem. You don't have to think about the language aspect of how you're going to solve a problem. You can just focus on the problem itself and how you want to approach it. And then the language just naturally flows. It's like mastering a human language, right? You don't have to think about grammar or syntax or the words, and you can just fluently speak. I know that really well as because English is my second language. The moment where you're thinking in that other language, even that's when you've had mastery. Just again, like with human languages, it's always a good thing to know more languages. It never hurts. And I don't think it's ever confusing either because you always see different patterns, different approaches. Each language has its pros and cons and different approach to solving the same things. And you always come away having learned something new. Hi there, Julie here. I would like to take a moment to thank GoReels for sponsoring this episode. When I was first starting out, I struggled with finding up-to-date content to help me level up. Then I learned about GoReels. Not only does GoReels provide new screencasts weekly, they also have two fantastic instructors that break down complex topics into digestible chunks. On top of that, I really appreciate when they explain the whys behind the subject. One of my favorite walkthroughs is creating your first Ruby gem from scratch. What a great way to learn by stripping down to just the basics. If you care about leveling up as a Ruby engineer, you can't go wrong with GoRails. Check it out at GoRails.com. I like solving problems. I like to experiment. I like to learn things to learn them. I like to learn the dumbest stuff so deeply. But as someone who has ADHD, don't really believe in mastering anything. Because to me, it's like, it's a fleeting thing. A lot of things are fleeting. The things that stick around, you grow and you build up over time. And what you were saying about programming kind of being a pattern. That's what I was trying to tell my dad when they were down here this past week. I was like, I don't care about the programming language. I obviously want to and enjoy writing Ruby. I was like, but there's patterns in all these languages that persist throughout that are universal truths. And there's languages in autonomy and grammar and there's control structures and these exist everywhere. And you get to a point where you're like, I need to solve a problem. I'm going to think and then I'm going to grab the syntax that I need to solve that problem. Yeah, I totally agree. The geeky academic part of me has this viewpoint that everything we're doing with computers is basically nothing more than just running a Turing machine anyway at the end of the day. Because for people who don't know, Alan Turing, one of his seminal works, other than all the other stuff that he did, was to come up with this idea of a universal Turing machine. And it's called a universal Turing machine because he was able to prove that given that kind of a machine, you can compute anything that's computable. So whatever we're doing with our current machines is doable with a very silly universal Turing machine, which just has a tape and an eye and just like some pencil or something. And all we're doing, all we're adding on top of that is layers of abstraction, to make programming those things easier, more understandable, more of a social thing, more maintainable. Plus, of course, to make those things run more performantly as well, right? Because 
even though the universal Turing machine could compute everything, it would probably take a long time for it to compute many of the things that we're interested in, and we don't have that kind of a time. So all that to say, I like boiling things down to like first principles and the basics. So like the moment you start looking at programming and computers from that lens, I totally agree. Like then everything else is just like those patterns and those patterns as abstractions on top of other abstractions. Yes, all of these things are fleeting at the end of the day. But again, like if you're working with a particular set of tools, I personally really enjoy mastering those tools and knowing them like inside out so that I feel comfortable doing my work and I can use them for my benefit instead of tackling over every little thing. And I think that's what I think of when I think of mastery. I'm curious what it looks like when you say mastering your tool. If I'm thinking about a problem that I want to solve in Ruby, how will I know that I've mastered? Will it just fly out of my fingers as if the keyboard is like part of my body where I don't have to look and type the keys? Like, I'm curious what that feels like. Sort of. I don't I quite believe in the fast typer hacker vision that might lie in there. I don't think that's what you meant, but it <laughs> might be construed to mean that. I think what I was really trying to get at is if you're trying to, let's say, put together a module that's going to be included in a class, but it's going to have side effects and it needs to add a class method needs to do these different things. And you have this all planned in your head and exactly how the API that you're going to build for other developers is going to look like. If you need to sit down and think really hard on how to implement that with your choice of language, then you still need to learn more about that language. But if it comes naturally to you to like, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to put together a module and I'm going to either use a concern or I'm going to build whatever concerns are doing so that I can add a class method. And that class method is going to add an instance variable at the class level that's going to store this and that. And if that's coming to you naturally, then you've already mastered that language because you've seen all those patterns. You can recognize them. And moreover, maybe more importantly, you can apply them to the job at hand. And I think that's when I, at least I feel like I've I've mastered something. Is there a better way of getting to that point besides just keep building and building? Is there a deliberate way of knowing what to build to get to that point faster? Good question. I'm not sure. But I think this is like mastering any sort of artistic endeavor. As I guess, actually don't play the guitar, but I guess knowing people who do play the guitar or any kind of musical instrument they always say it's practice, right? Like it doesn't quite matter if you're practicing jazz or classical music or whatever, but just like to keep on practicing. And at some point you stop thinking about the individual notes or the bars or the strings on the guitar or whatever. And you stop having to care about where your fingers are and you just know what you're going to play. And that kind of flow state is when you have mastery. Sorry, I, again, this feels like a non-answer, but... I guess it's about a lot of practice with different kinds of things, not necessarily a particular kind of thing. Julie, I, the other day, was reading a book on how to learn better. And I was like, if I can just find the shortcut to learning better, then I can finally learn all the things better. And as I kind of sat there 
kind of just realized I just really want a shortcut and there just really isn't one. So maybe I'll just go do something else. <laughs> I wish there was a shortcut, but I think he's right. It's just repetition. It becomes almost like a phantom limb. You just do it. You see patterns, like almost like in the Matrix. You can see things among the sea of characters. Yeah, I was going to also reference the Matrix as in the shortcut would have been to, I don't know, eject a USB drive in your body and all of a sudden you know how to be a master at Ruby. <laughs> I want to add one more thing to that. I think the other aspect of that on top of practice is watching others who are good at it. So like when it comes to programming, it's like reading a lot of code that other people who you trust to write good code has written or working with people who know more than you, like pairing with them and working closely with them. That teaches you a lot in a very short amount of time. And if I can tie this back to one thing that we're looking forward to doing at RubyConf this year, the first day is going to be community day. So I didn't say this before, but I'm on the program committee for RubyConf this year. And Eric Guzman and me are responsible for organizing the hack day, which is going to happen on the community day on Monday. And during the hack day, We've invited about 20, 25 different project leaders, open source project leaders, people who work on CRuby, Truffle Ruby, JRuby, a lot of different gems and a lot of different projects. And there will we be there looking forward to working with people from the community to develop something, to hack on something. I don't know if we'll be able to create something at the end of the day. It's going to be kind of a short day, but one of the goals of that exercise is to allow people who are newer to the language, who are newer to Ruby, to get a chance to work with people who know what they're doing, who are leading these projects and have a chance to contribute and to spend some time with them. And I think that's a very important aspect and that's one of the parts of the hack day that really excites me. What do you love about the Ruby community? I think what I love about the Ruby community is the fact that it's so open and welcoming. I know there's sometimes some drama and tensions, etc. But I guess that happens in any community or even any family. But other than that, I think on the whole, especially on an in-person setting, a lot of the people I've met in the Ruby community are so welcoming and so easygoing, so easy to talk to, so easy to collaborate with. I found it so easy to just open up a conversation with someone, pick their brains on something that they know a lot about, to learn from them, to share experiences. And this has also happened for me in professional setting as well. For example, before I came to Shopify, I used to think, oh, like these big companies probably never talk to each other and they're probably keeping all of their technology close to their chest or something. But especially for teams like ours that work at the intersection of a big company and the open source community, I've made a lot of connections with other people from other companies like Shopify, for example, for people at GitHub, people at Stripe, people at Gusto, people at Intercom that we've had opportunities to work very closely with, to build projects together sometimes, for example, with GitHub folks. They've contributed heavily to YJIT and PRISM. 
the two technologies that we've been developing at Shopify primarily. And we also helped a lot the development of Sorbet, helping Stripe make sure that's tool that works better for Rails developers as well. So all that collaboration that I saw happening, all that free flow of information between those companies as well, has made me really proud to be in this community. How long have you been in the Ruby community and how has it evolved since when you first joined and now? I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was around 2012 when I taught myself Ruby and Rails and built a project with it. I wasn't necessarily in the community, but I'd started like following the things that were happening in the community around that time. But again, my focus was heavily towards like making sure the startups that we were supporting succeeded. And it was like heavily towards the product and not much of the community. After I left that job, I started doing something with PHP and then a few things with JavaScript and TypeScript. But I always tried to bring Ruby in, at least for testing. So the project we were doing with PHP brought Ruby in so that we can do integration testing because it was a very good tool for doing that kind of thing with Capybara and being able to click things on the screen with like short scripts. But that was mostly my time away from Ruby and the Ruby community. And I, I think came into the community as a participant five years ago when I joined Shopify in my current role. So I have a history of over a decade with the language, but I think my primary community involvement has been sort of about over the last five years. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime shouldn't be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with HoneyBadger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Best of all, HoneyBadger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at HoneyBadger.io. That's www.HoneyBadger.io. What are you looking forward to in San Diego? Like I said, primarily excited about the hack day. Probably I'm biased because I'm co-organizing it, like I said, but I volunteered to co-organize that because that was something I was really excited about and I really wanted as part of the conference. But again, let me take a step back and pare this down to first principles. So the way I look at conferences is they are the offsites for our open source communities. And as such, every conference has a different audience. For example, RailsConf is a conference for people who work with Rails. Rails World is a conference for people primarily who work on Rails, on the Rails framework itself. Similarly, Ruby Kaigi is a conference for people who work on CRuby or Chopper Ruby, those implementations, and they're highly technical conferences. Whereas RubyConf is for people who work with Ruby. And as such, if this is the offsite of people who work with Ruby, 
then we should be able to come together and build things and do more things than just sit down and listen to each other talk. While that's important and effective and useful, I think it's a very one-way form of communicating. The biggest benefit that I found in my conference participation has been the hallway track and just talking to people and doing things outside of the talks. At the same time, on our program, we have exciting workshops. Again, they will be happening on Monday, on the first day, parallel to the hack day. We have four workshops and we also have, I think, 14 or 15 talks. We have much less talks this year because it's a two-day conference for talks. Also, it's a two-track thing. Again, the program committee realized that these conferences were overwhelming people with four or five tracks and workshops happening at the same time and people trying to do the hallway track. So it's pared down to just a dozen or so talks. Then they're like really fantastic talks. I'm looking forward to all of them. But we also have a new thing, again, open spaces that's going to run alongside talks as well. And open spaces is going to be an open space, as the name implies, for either Ruby content creators or Ruby implementations or different projects in the Ruby open source space. So people will have a chance to come together, ask questions, have conversations around them. So a little bit different to the hack day where they'll be working together. This will be more about conversing and brainstorming and thinking about and talking about the future. So I'm excited about all those parts of the conference. And I'm really looking forward to how this new format is going to be and what we can learn from it and maybe apply to future conferences as well. Probably not all of them are going to work equally well, but I'm sure we can take some learnings. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the new format. I'm excited that I get to experience it firsthand. So I am looking forward to that. I have a complaint. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> I have a complaint and I feel like it has to be heard. There is a lot of really cool stuff happening at RubyConf this year. Monday, there's a lot of really cool people, a lot of really cool open source projects that are going to be there. Great opportunities. They're doing this two-track system, and this is why. And the website, you would not know any of this. You wouldn't know that the first day was a hackathon. Like when, So I feel like some of this could have been spread a little bit more because I feel like after Rails World, there was like burnout from a lot of the people that I was around. They were like, I don't know if I want to go to another conference. And I was like, oh, this is really inconvenient, but I'm getting like more and more excited about it. And I wish they had kind of broadcasted some of these a little bit louder. No, I hear you. And I do hear that we should have probably done a better job of communicating some of these things. And I think we'll probably do a retro after the conference and take learnings from it so that Ruby Central can do a better job of it. Next time I'm speaking as a program committee member, I think we could have done more to publicize some of the things that we were all involved in. But yeah, I don't quite like the schedule format on the website either. Visually, it doesn't show the, the tracks happening in parallel, etc. It's a small team that are trying to yeah. put together a really large conference. I admire all of the things that they've already done. So I'm not going to complain about that. I want to be very clear. The design of the web, whoever did the design on that website, I want to find their Instagram or their journal or whatever because it looks great. Their website, the design's been great for the past few years, but we need some more yeah. information density. Yeah. I think that shared so the designer was. Yeah. I got to go right I think down. that's on social media somewhere. 
I know we're running up on time, but I want to know a little bit more about this first principle of thinking and how I can apply that more to my day-to-day as I'm learning programming. And I'm curious, what advice might you have for someone like me who don't really do that? So how might I kind of exercise that more? First principle thinking is, I think, a term that's mostly coming from physics or physicists. And in the physics domain, it's usually when you're confronted with a problem, like, oh, why does this certain thing happen in a certain way? And the healthy way to reason about that is to go back to your first principles. First principles are like, what are some of the fundamental laws of nature that we know about? Like Newton's law of gravity, or what do we know about gases or liquids? Those are the fundamental things in our tool belt of knowledge that everything else is built on top of. So when you come across a new phenomena, the best thing to do is to resort back to your first principles and to see if using them, you can try to understand why a certain thing might be happening. But basically, to answer your question about how like people can apply that, when you're confronted with a situation or a problem or something you need to solve, instead of trying to attack that directly, thinking what are some of the underlying principles that has either caused this or some of the things that exist that this thing lives within that I might be able to control so that I can solve this problem or go around it. So that's usually the first principles thinking. Again, like what I was trying to say with the choice of programming language, I agreed with Andrew when he was saying they're all just patterns because again, first principles thinking is everything is a Turing machine at the end of the day, right? Like when you think of it that way, then you don't need to think about different languages or whatever. We're all basically doing the same thing. And then there's no war between, oh, are you doing... Python or Ruby or PHP or whatever. Or when you're thinking about conferences, what are conferences? Why do we come together? What are we trying to achieve? Just like sometimes asking those why questions and trying to get to the root cause and the bottom of those things is the whole package is like first principles thinking. Sometimes that needs you to go down deeper in your understanding. If you don't know about the layers that sit underneath the problem, Like when you're programming, if you don't know about the network layer, for example, but you have a problem with the network, well, sometimes you need to go down into the stack and understand a little bit more about the network so you can apply those first principles about the network that you've now learned to solve your problem because you wouldn't be able to solve it from the place where you're at, where you're sitting on top of the network if the problem is below the layer. And I'd love to link your Rails Comp 2020 talk about killing the layers of the network. So we'll find that and link it in the show notes. And I hope that's useful. I'm open feedback about that. It was a bit rushed when I put that together. That was the, the first time conferences went remote and it was a recorded thing. The recording quality wasn't so good for that reason. But also I tried to do something different. As I was preparing for the talk, I started taking notes and I realized that if I had enough notes to maybe put together like a mini website. So I said, okay, as I'm doing the video, once I've recorded it and sent it, I still have more time until the video is released on the conference website to actually 
add more to my notes and put together like a mini website to accompany the talk. So I put together that mini website as well. And I hope that's like more helpful than just the talk itself. But it was an interesting way to turn the remote experience to my benefit so that I could deliver two things instead of just one single talk. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a great idea. And leads me to another question of, do you prefer to give talks remotely or virtually versus in person? Or which do you prefer? I think in person, but you can have a different answer to the one, to the question that you're asking. I think I prefer to give talks where I'm not prepared. I'm a huge procrastinator and that's why I've stopped giving talks because I always leave them to the last minute and they're always rushed and I never spend enough time putting together the talk. Like it's always on my mind. I'm always thinking about it for like months and months and I know exactly what I want to say. But just putting together the slides and everything, like all the things that go into the talk itself, I have a really hard time. So the kind of talk I would really love to give is give me a topic, give me a whiteboard and give me a pen and just tell me to explain something and I will do it. I just don't want to be prepared. I just don't have the time to be prepared for it. And I guess that's why I enjoy going on podcasts as well, because we get to have a conversation and I don't need to prepare slides before coming here. So I think that's the kind of talk that I really enjoy, either in person or remotely. But I'm always a fan of in person because I love meeting people and talking to them. I feel you on everything you just said to my soul (laughs) deeper. I was a member of Toastmasters and there are speeches that you would do where you need to prepare in advance what you want to say. And then there's me who maybe write like three words of the three things that I'm going to bring up and then I don't say anything else. But I think the reason why I do it that way is because I give myself an out as in, well, I'm not prepared, so I'm not going to be upset if I don't do very well. But I'm sure you are doing really well. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I want to, I like it in the moment. If I didn't have to know like the talk idea like before walking on stage, perfect. I have a whiteboard. You can't see it because it's in the other room, but I love that thing. But maybe we should put together a conference just around that topic, like that yeah. concept, right? Yeah, like an audience chosen topic for that one moment. <laughs> exactly. No one knows what they're going to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Last question before we have to wrap this up, unfortunately. What's your favorite Ruby method? I think the triple equals. Ah. It's such a... What's the Explain word it for? for people who may not have come across that. It's an underappreciated Ruby method. The triple equals method is, I think, also named case equality. Because when you do case when, that's actually what happens under the hood. I think of triple equals as an inclusion check operator. If you do full triple equals bar, that's like, does bar belong to anything that's off class or like type foo sort of thing. So you can use triple equals with ranges on the left-hand side. So if you have a range, triple equals something, that's like asking, does this thing on the right-hand side belong in this range? Is it inside this range? Similarly, you can do that with regular expressions. You can do that With a module, you can say, 
integer triple equals two, for example, that's asking is two an integer. You can also write that as two dot is a question mark integer, but you can write it as integer triple equals two as well. That's not very common. And I've only started using that syntax with triple equals instead of is a when I was working on tapioca. For people who don't know, tapioca is a tooling in the Sorbet ecosystem. It takes a gem and discovers all of its like classes, modules, and methods, and then generates those as a Ruby interface file. And because its job is to load a completely foreign gem and its code, and then to look into it to see what methods exist and what classes and things exist, it needs to work in very hostile territory. So territory in which people do override methods like isa. So you can't trust anything. But you can trust triple equals more often because one, people don't quite overwrite triple equals that much. And also you're inverting the responsibility when you do triple equals instead of asking the object if it is of a certain type, you're asking the type that you know if it includes the object as one of its members. So then that's safer because I control the type, but I don't control the object that I'm dealing with. So I've gotten into the habit of using triple equals in that setting. And I don't know, I enjoy that. Been a while. It's a great question. Answered that very well. I have to say that was a very good explanation on an audio version of what I was reading. So great. Oh, here's what I need from you. We need a sorbet or a RBS expert. We need someone who's in that world because I have dabbled in it. And frankly, I'm not the biggest fan and I want to be convinced of on sorbet. So we need some sorbet experts to come on and share with the people and me. Sure. Yeah, I'll hook you up. But I've been listening to you talk about how you like writing yard annotations. So you're already doing typing, Andrew. I know. I know. Just your types are locked in yard annotations and you're not using a very flexible typing language in those annotations. If you used something that was in line and maybe still comment based, but that was like also type checked against your code base, I think you would enjoy it because you're already like halfway there. Yeah, I like RBS and I've used that. I think the problem is I used Sorbet like as soon as it was like possible to use it. And maybe I need to revisit it now that it's not so new and where I was just, I just remember like I haven't been that frustrated in my life. So definitely frustrating parts around it, but we're working to make that easier as well. And maybe during RubyConf, you and I can just look at sorbetizing a small piece of code that you have and see where that goes. I do like types, so I'm open to it. I want to be convinced. Cool. This was really great. So fun having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and I'm looking forward to seeing you at RubyConf. Likewise, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us. We will catch you all next week. Same time, same great place, same great people. Bye. Bye everyone.